Good morning, church. Always oh, a good response. You guys are awake. Hey, would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have in front of us this morning, God, to uh, not only be able to meet together, God, but have your word, a physical copy, God, of your your words to us. God, what a, what a joy it is to be able to study that this morning. God, would you teach us that, your words and your words alone. God, would it be you that we see this morning, nothing else? Would the distractions fade away? Would the things going on in our week feel smaller just for these next couple of minutes, God, so we can see what you are doing in our lives? God, we love you so much. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. About a month ago now, I, well, student ministries, middle school and high school, we went to Hume Lake. Uh, Hume Lake is a Christian camp up near Yosemite that uh, we've gone to for 20 plus years now. And um, this year I got to take my wife for the very first time. She'd never been to Hume Lake. She had no idea what it was. And so it was cool to be able to take her and like show her what I had done for the past four years of serving in ministry. What, like, this is where we go to get milkshakes. This is where we go to uh, play in the lake. This is where we go and show all those things, right? Well, one of the biggest things at Hume Lake is the merchandise or the shirts that you can get at Hume Lake. It's, it's kind of funny how, how um, these shirts, these pieces of clothing, these hats pop up everywhere. Uh, after Hume Lake, I feel like I see him in all places. And so this is one of the biggest things there. And so, and I was like, Hey, I hear about this every year. I want to go see what it looks like. And so we went into the place where you buy merch and there's a line and I'm talking like a, a snake line that stretches all the way around the place. And I was like, okay, this is going to be a while. So let's take our time to look. So we go, we look around, we pick out a shirt, uh, pick out a sticker and we're like, okay, well we can get in line now. We get in line and there's a middle schooler in front of us. And this middle schooler has a shirt in his hand. And the shirt's all right. It's nothing new. It's nothing crazy. It's, it's a shirt that says Hume Lake on it. And so he gets up to the front to pay. He gives them the shirt. They scan the thing. And they go, all right, your total's $35 even. And the kid pulls out $25. And or he had like a gift card, like one of those prepaid Visa gift cards. They swipe. He's like, okay, you need... $10 more. And the kid's looking around. He's kind of frantic. He's like, ah, do I have $10? I, this shirt's, this, this black and white shirt is so cool. Do I have $10 to pay for this? Out of his backpack, he pulls a change sack, like a Ziploc bag with quarters in it. He sets it on the counter and he counts it all out. $10 exactly. And the kid's like, oh my gosh, I have the money. I can pay, I can pay for the shirt. And the lady stops him before he pays. And she says, are you sure you don't want to call your mom with that money? Because on the bag, it says phone money. <laughs> so this kid had taken the quarters he had used for his phone. He was going to use for the pay phone that week that his mom probably took out to give him because she was worried about his first year at camp and if he was going to be all right. And he takes him, he looks at the quarters, he looks at what it says, he looks back at the shirt. He goes, no, I don't need to call my mom. Here's what it is. And so he gives her the quarters. Where we're at this week in Hosea, where we left off from last week, is this same emotion, silly or not, that we, we have these quarters. God's given us these tools. He's given us these ways to live life. He's given us these gifts, these things, these blessings. And we take our quarters and we give it to the t-shirt every single time. 
That the purpose of these quarters were to call our mom or to be in relationship with God or to love God. But yet we take them and we put them to the t-shirt. We put them to the thing that they weren't meant for. Or we catch the Israelites in Hosea coming off of last week is this same emotion. The Israelites last week, we talked about uh, the three points I gave you. God uses ordinary people for an extraordinary mission. That he used someone like Hosea and Gomer, who are ordinary people, to display the gospel to an entire nation. Or that God promises reconciliation. That in everything, even though we take the quarters and we give it to something else, that God still desires to be in relationship with us. He still wants to make the phone call. And then that God does not let sin go unpunished. That because of our sins, because of everything we do because of the ways we're imperfect, that there has to be a payment for that. And we talked about how Christ to us is that payment. The Israelites didn't know who the Messiah was, but we live in an age where we know who the Messiah was and what he did for us. And so this week we're continuing through Hosea and it's a lot of the similar things, but this week we're focusing on the last four chapters, chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. And we're looking at how God is faithful, period. Our Lord is faithful. And so this morning, uh, I'm going to put three points in front of you. We'll talk about them as you go on. But we're looking at how the Lord is a faithful father. We're looking at how he's a faithful punisher. And we're looking at how he's a faithful restorer. That this morning we'll see how God keeps his promise time and time again, no matter what it is. And how we fall short in that. But first, we're going to look at chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles with me, if you would turn to chapter 11 of Hosea, we look at first uh, who God is. Uh, Our first faithful point this morning, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, it reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they, they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing the balls and turning offerings to idols. If you're taking notes this morning... Uh, our first point is God is a faithful father. Our Lord is a faithful father. And I know that might stir up some emotions in you. That might stir up the idea of like, I, you say the word father and that doesn't sit well with me. I understand it. I get it. Uh, this morning when we were talking about God, the father, we're talking about the perfect image of who that is. So knowing that all of our fathers on earth fall short of that, knowing that everything we know as a father that we've seen with our eyes, not in the context of the Bible, falls short of that. This morning we're looking at what perfect fatherhood means. What it looks like to be the perfect father. And so 11.1, we see two meanings of love, two distinct meanings that that God, uh, through his word, displays for the Israelites. One is this love of adoption. In chapter 11, we see, uh, we see Hosea display this love of adoption that God has for a son. That he, that like, a, like you were to adopt a son, that he would love you anyway. And the second one we're looking at is by obligation. Love by obligation, treaty, or agreement. That God loves us as a father, that he treats us fatherly because that's who he is. Because that's what he does. The theme continues in verse 3 where it says, uh, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with a cord of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaw. I bent down, I bent down to them and fed them. Again, 
we see God displaying this love, this, this fatherly notion to, to his people that like a father, he fed them. Like a father, he was with them. He talks about even when they don't know it, God was a father. I, I think of back to my childhood uh, of like knowing that my parents fed me, but not knowing like that's where it came from. If that makes sense to you guys of like, I know there's going to be food on the table, but there was never a back of the mind obligation of like, these are my parents who feed me. That wasn't, that wasn't the through line of thought. In the same way, sometimes when we think about God and we forget about the blessings he does for us, we don't think about the direct line that comes from it. That this blessing is directly from God, nothing else. The greatest writer of our time period, I think, displays this well. Uh, She writes, what if I told you none of this was accidental? The first night that you saw me, nothing was going to stop me. I laid the groundwork, and then just like clockwork, the dominoes cascaded in a line. What if I told you I'm the mastermind? And now you're mine. It was all by design, because I'm the mastermind. Although Taylor Swift's lyrics are from an imperfect person whose motives are not God's, I think this displays the emotion well. This shows, hey, behind all of it, whether you see it or not, no matter who it is, God at all times is in control. He's a father who loves you. And at all times, whether we see it or not, he is fatherly. Continuing verse 7, we read, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst, and I will not come in wrath. Here's the truth, church. Our God acts as a faithful father no matter what we do. Our our God's stance as a faithful father, our God's fatherly instinct isn't dependent on our decisions. That's just who he is. That God is a faithful father no matter whether we mess up time and time and time again. We see the emotions in chapter 1 where he talks about people who aren't my people. And then we see it in chapter 11, this adoptive love where he says, I, how can I do this to you? How can I sit here and do this to you? How can I treat you as these other nations? You're my people. That God, in this moment, we see how adoptive and loving he is of the nation of Israel, even though they don't choose him. Why is that? Simply because that's who he is. That, that God is a father no matter what you or I's percep- perception is of him, no matter what we think of him, no matter what we're seeing of him. God is a father to us, period. It makes verses like Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where he says, I'm gentle and lowly, mean a little bit more. That this father that we know, that we talk about on Sunday mornings, that we've heard our lives, that he is gentle and lowly, that he is welcoming to us. There's Psalm 103 where it says he's tender and compassionate in heart. 
That this father desires to be with us. He loves us. He's compassionate. Or Psalm 86, 15, where it says that God's heart is filled with faithfulness. These verses mean more when we come to the conclusion that God is a faithful father no matter what you or I do. That's just the truth. He acts fatherly to us as he adopted kids into his life. Hosea has been such a fun and interesting um, study for myself. Uh, like I had said last week, uh, I hadn't spent a ton of time in Hosea. I've done it for like daily devotionals, but being in this study for the past couple months in Hosea has been really cool to me because it's reminded me of my own humanness, right? That we, in chapter to chapter, we see these different characteristics, different emotions that God shows that I'll never understand how that works. Like how in one way we can see God being loving, faithful, fatherly. And in that same moment, not split apart, not separate. God is just as well. That he is someone who cannot let sin go unpunished. That, that is something I won't understand. It's how complex and how big our God is. But also how beautiful it is. If you're taking notes with us, our second point this morning is that God is a faithful punisher. Similar to last week, if you remember the last point that I talked about in the intro, uh, God's, uh, cannot, God cannot let sin go unpunished. He sees sin, he sees the imperfections in the world, he can't be a part of it, so he can't let it go unpunished. And in chapter 13, we see that, uh, we see that same emotion again. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1 starts with, when Ephraim spoke... There was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he uh, incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of the silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said to them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, like the dew that goes early away, like the uh, chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like the smoke from the window. Chapter 13 shows the actions of, uh, of Israel's sin. Of what, 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 is, what it looks like to God for Israel to be within their sin. We see the, uh, a flip happen. Uh, I'll explain that right now. But in chapter 6 verse 2, uh, Hosea says, After two days he will receive us. On the third day he will raise us up and they may live before him. Talking about Yahweh. Talking about God. In chapter 1, or in uh, chapter 13 verse, uh, verses 1 through 3, we see this opposite emotion. In chapter 6 we see Yahweh, God, giver of life, uh, promiser, faithful, Everything that is good we see coming up from God. And then it's flip-flopped in chapter 13 to show us how useless these false idols are to the Israelites. Baal, in chapter er, in verse 1, it says, uh, When Ephraim spoke, there is trembling. He exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal, and catch this, and died. Poetically, Hosea is writing these lines to turn the Israelites to the attention to what comes from Baal is death. But what comes from Yahweh is eternal life. What comes from worshiping and repenting to the God who's created us comes good. 
He wants them to see their sins or what they're committing and the weight that brings. Verse 2 shows us explicitly uh, the sins explicitly committed uh, through God. Or uh, to God through the Israelites. Uh, in that time, it talks about kissing calves. Uh, kissing was known as a submissive action during their time period. That uh, for them to kiss something was meaning they were submitted to it. So seeing the, the phrase kissing calves is looking at like there was the golden idol that they created. And they were worshiping and the false God that they had. And them kissing it or kissing the feet of it, that showed them submitting everything about them to that. That showed them showing that whatever it is, whatever my life is, I'm submitting to this. It was what it showed. So when Hosea says that, it's a, it's a line to point to like, they've gone so far to commit their life to this thing. And like last week, I want to remind us of this isn't just, this isn't just Israel. That our calves are all over the place this morning. According to research on the con, uh, conducted by Barna Group, 64% of U.S. Christian men and 15% of U.S. Christian women admitted to watching uh, adult explicit content in the last year. About 12 times a year, roughly. 25% of pastors admit that they are currently battling with this adult sexual explicitly content that we find on our internet, through our media. Pastors. 33% of clergy stated that they had visited sexually explicit websites, according to Christianity Today. You and I, I say these stats to show you that humans have not solved the sin issue. That sin still happens today. We see the Israelites back in what they're doing, back in their worship of idols, back in their adultery. And that hasn't changed for us today. And specifically, hasn't changed for any members in the church as well. We can't point to the outside and say, the media is corrupt, my neighborhood's corrupt, my neighbor is corrupt, my family's corrupt. No. Us in our own nature are corrupt. We're sinful. And so when we look at stats like this, when we look at it, it's no, you can only think of the image of submitting to the calf. Then our daily basis, there's these gold idols, whether it be pride, lust. If that goes unchecked in my life, if I worship my pride, if I worship my lust, if I'm kissing the feet and pumping up my pride, that's as bad as the Israelites are. Our sin, unrepentant. It's death. It's, it's bail. It's worshiping which equals death. Verse 3 talks about this unrepentance. It gives us an image of a house. Houses, how they were built in the time period, didn't have chimneys. And so when you would light a fire inside the house, it would try to uh, escape from every direction it could. So that would be a window, a door. Uh, Jose gives us the imagery of a window. That they are fleeting. That the Israelites, like smoke in a house, just tries to escape. That they're here one moment and like the smoke in the house, they're gone for a second. That they're unrepentant. That they might say in the moment when the fire's lit, when the smoke's in the room, that God, I, I'm on fire for you. God, forgive me. But then that next day they go and leave the house. Church, how relatable is that for us? Like smoke in a window. 
That simply as fast as we ask for forgiveness, we're on to our next sin. Chapter 13, verse 5 reads, uh, It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of droughts. But when they gazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear rub the cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and, they, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where all are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in anger and I took him away in wrath. The larger majority of chapter 13, we see how much our God is angry with sin. How much God is metaphorically blood boiling over our sin, over the things we commit. Verse 5 through 7 describes uh, Israel's choice to seek after something else other than God. And then God's saying, I, I can't be a part of this. I don't know you. I'm a perfect God who can't be within sin. So therefore, you're making me get to this point. You're making me with, uh, leave you out here to dry. But church, how relatable is that for us? That in moments of hardship, I find it easy to be like, God, I need you. That when my life stinks or I'm, I'm mad about something or I feel uh, wronged, it's easy for me to go, God, I need you right now. But when everything's going good, it's easy for me to just pump up my ego. That like, look at what I created. Look at what I did. Look at what I've done. This passage is relatable to us because we look at the ways that Israel is there and on their knees in their lowest moments. But yet do not recognize the blessings God's already given them, the kings, the princes, the things God's already given them after the fact. Because our God is perfect, because of what he does, because of who he is, he can't let sin go unpunished. He's faithful to his promise to punish sin. You and I know that. You and I have seen know the story. We know what Christ came and did. We know that out of love, he sent his son to die for you and me and raise again, defeating death. Sin can't go unpunished. When I was three or four, I think I broke my arm in the most embarrassing place to break your arm. Um, I was uh, three or four years old out to lunch with my family at a Burger King. Um, at this Burger King, I was sitting on a chair with a chicken nugget in my hand, a little BK crown on my head, and I was wobbling back and forth. See, I, I, was, I was young enough that my feet couldn't touch the ground. So I was wobbling back and forth on the chair, and the legs get going on either side, and I tip over, and I land right on my elbow, which broke my <laughs> arm. Which, now, saying that out loud, I broke my arm at Burger King feels like two truths and a lie, and that's the lie. It's like, what? You broke your arm at Burger King? Well, you must have been playing on the playground. Nope. I was sitting in a chair and fell out of it. Um, broke my arm at Burger King. What we know about, uh, about broken bones by modern medicine is when you break the bone, when they go in to repair it, 
It becomes stronger than it was before. That after a broken bone, when they go to reset it, that bone becomes stronger than it was before you broke it. I want to point us to the idea of our God, when we have a broken bone, when we are in this place, our God seeks to make that bone stronger than it was before. If you're taking notes with us, if you're continuing to following along, our final point is that God is a faithful restorer. The God in everything, God, who he is, always from day one to the end of the days, God wants restoration. That's who he is. That's what he wants. And so like a bone, I want you to have this image in your head that God takes up a broken heart. That he gets close. He's, I read that verse in Matthew that he's gentle and lowly. He goes near to these people who need it. That he sees a broken heart and he's not scared, but knows you're coming to him for help. That he resets our heart in a way that makes it stronger later. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2 reads, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of your lips. The instructions here are to move toward restoration. They're they're to move toward asking for forgiveness. He he gives it pretty clear in verse 2 when he says, forgive all our sins. He's telling him to say this, say to him, forgive all your sins and receive us graciously that we may offer fruit of our lips. And this isn't anything new. This is what repentance looks like. It's chapter 14 is calling Israel to repentance and what's going to happen afterwards. Christ even lives by this. When Christ says in Matthew 9, uh, verse 13, uh, when talking to the Pharisees, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And if you've read Hosea with us this last week, this verse is familiar to you. Because this, this is a direct quote from Hosea chapter 6. That Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. It's really cool that Christ quotes Hosea here for two reasons. The first reason is for any of my uh, theology nerds in the crowd, that this gives us proof of the canonical value of Hosea in our greater Bible. So we, at a time, had to, there was a conference to decide what books go in the Bible, right? And so they look at, like, what would Jesus have considered Scripture or God's Word? Because God himself looks at what he would consider God's Word. And so one of them, obviously, was Hosea, because he quotes it. So it's showing us that in Christ's life, as a child, he would have memorized Hosea, meaning he would have seen that as God's scripture. Enough to quote it. And so that's cool. It shows us that uh, Hosea, the book we're reading, is what Christ would have seen as scripture as well. The second reason it's really cool is because it shows us an unchanging God. It shows us a God whose plan has never changed. In the story of, uh, of Christ, where we find him when he quotes Hosea, he had just called Matthew to his ministry. Matthew, the tax collector. He just called Matthew to say, hey, drop everything and follow me. And Matthew accepted it. He does. And in this moment, Christ is eating with Matthew's tax collector buddies afterwards. They're having dinner. And the Pharisees are watching along. They're looking at Jesus. And they say this in verse 11 and 12 of Matthew 9. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus' heart was not for the Pharisees or the quote-unquote the righteous. He was there for the tax collector. He was there for the person in need. He was there for the person who, whose bone was broken and was in need of restoring. Similarly, in chapter 6, verse 6 of Hosea, God calls people to knowledge of him over burnt offering. What does that look like? God called people to simply know him more than to do the tasks they were asked to do on a daily basis. And you might say, Kellen, this is biblical. Burnt offering was needed at that time period. Like, why would God say here that I want knowledge of you over burnt offering? Because they weren't using it to worship God. Their, their burnt offering was like a band-aid. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Well, I haven't gone to church in over a month, and so I'm going to go to church this Sunday, and that's going to be good for me for the rest of the year. Or I haven't gone, opened my Bible in a couple days, and so I'm going to open my Bible today, and then after I close it, that's it. That's a good. I'm good for a couple weeks. They're using burnt offering as a band-aid fix to align with God, and God says, I don't need that. I don't need the tasks you do. I don't need the things you do. I don't need the, the works you do. I just want you to know me. Christ quoting Hosea is awesome because it shows God's plan for restoration has never changed. That in the Old Testament, we read a verse where God says, I want you to know me over all of your works. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know my heart. I want you to know who I am over any task you're going to do that's supposedly in the name of me. And in the New Testament, we see the same thing of Christ saying to the Pharisees, I don't, I'm not here for the quote unquote righteous. No one is righteous compared to me. I'm here to help the sinner. I'm here for the brokenhearted. I'm here to see the broken bone and to make it stronger. Our God's plan from the very beginning was always restoration. It always was to be in unification with him. It always was to come back. God's faithful to his promises and he shows that through Christ's life. He shows that through even the ways Christ ran his ministry. He shows that from Old Testament to New Testament that doesn't change. That God's always desired restoration for our relationship with him. All we have to do is repent. That's all he calls them to. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to what he calls Matthew to do. Give up your job. Turn it away. What you're doing is evil. Step aside and follow me. An image of you and me of what we're doing on a daily basis, our sins. That we, we would take those things and we would say, no, there's a better path over here for me. That I would follow God. I know that my ways were wrong. He doesn't call us to seven prayers. He doesn't call us to helping anybody in our community. He calls us to repentance first and foremost. Without that, none of it, none of it is worth it. The burnt offerings, the sacrifice, the prayers we say, the tidings we give. If we aren't repentant in our heart, none of it's worth it. So what happens for the Israelites? 
God gives them a promise as we, as we begin to wrap up this morning. God gives them a promise of what it looks like when repentance happens. In chapter 14, uh, 14, starting in verse 4, it says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger is turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the new wine of Lebanon. Amen. Right? Because that's the proof for them. He says, look, this is where repentance gets you. This is where it takes you. I will come back. I am here for you. I'm not gone. I will love you. I do love you. That's the promise made to Israel. That if you repent, if you turn away from what you're doing, this is what it is. This is what the good life looks like. That I'm faithful to everything. I'm faithful to my promises. I'm faithful to being fatherly to you. I will care for you if you don't notice. I'm faithful through punishment that I don't want to do this, but I have to because it can't go unchecked. And that he's faithful through restoration that he desires out of no matter what, he wants to be in relationship with us, no matter where you think you stand with him today. And I've read the truths for the Israelites, but can I read some truths for you this morning that come out of the New Testament? That Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That Jesus Christ says in himself, repent, it's here now, not tomorrow, not in a month. The kingdom of heaven is here now. You're welcome to be a part of it. Then Matthew 9, 13, what we read today is, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I didn't come for the people who think they're doing it right. I came for the people who openly say, I'm not doing it right and I need help. Mark 1.15 saying the time is fulfilled and that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel that that's all it takes. That the stuff we try to complicate in our lives is as simple as repenting and believing in the gospel. That's the simplicity of it. It's not having to do a certain thing. It's not having to know a song, do a certain dance. It's repenting and believing in the gospel. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That we live in an age now where God's with us all the time through the Holy Spirit. That we're blessed with being able to have the Spirit in our lives, working through us on behalf of God. And that 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10 says, As it is, I rejoice... Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We have the choice this morning. We have the choice every single day. That we have these golden calves around our lives and we can commit we can keep submitting ourselves to that thing. We can keep kissing the feet. But God offers something so much greater. 
That he says, if you repent and know me and know the gospel and know that I came, died for your sins, took it all on my back, rose again, defeating death. That if you know that, that is enough. That's the faithful God we look at this morning. Is that God from the beginning promised us to be a father, to punish sin, and to restore us in relationship with him. Would you pray with me? God, we love you so much. God, I sit in awe of the ways that you constantly show up in my life. God, that I am so fickle. I don't, I don't feel like I understand it sometimes. But God, you are faithful no matter whether I see it or not. That you feed me when I don't know it. You bless me when I don't see it. And God would, can I just thank you? Can we thank you in this moment for that? God, would you give us eyes to see the blessings, God? Would you give us the eyes to see the ways you're moving, God? Would you, would you convict us and draw our hearts to you, God? Would we, would we be convicted in the ways that we aren't pointing back to you, the ways that we're quick to say, God, help me, and then when the help comes, we're quick to point to ourselves? God, I pray for our hearts to be quick to repent this morning. God, this morning, that if we were dealing with any unchecked sin, any unadmitted sin, God, that we would feel your presence, your love, your peace to know that you love us and all you desire is to repent from, from what we're doing and follow you. That that's the gospel. That's the truth. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways you bless us on a daily basis. Thank you for your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.